Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn in them again to the book of Colossians. We have now entered into the second chapter, and we are continuing in this great grace from God to be able to study this book, to look for Christ, to seek to see Him, and better understand Him, and as a result, gaze more at who He is, what He has done, what it means in our lives. The Naperville Presbyterian Church, in their uh, vision statement, say this. The Christ of the Bible is not meant merely to be understood theologically, believed in creedally, read about intellectually, or shared evangelistically. He is to be adored. That requires sound doctrine. Let me pause there and say absolutely critical for us to understand Christ as accurately, as biblically as we possibly can, and not just leave it to our imagination or somebody else's imagination. But doctrine is not an end in itself. We can reason and exegete people into right doctrine, and we should. But our deepest calling is to pray and disciple people into seeing his irresistible beauty. Today we're wrapping up the first third, if you think about our outline, our first third of the book, which has all been centered around Christ's preeminence being declared or shown or emphasized. We saw it in the gospel message in the first 12 verses, then in smaller portions in redemption, in creation, in the church, and in reconciliation and now, last Sunday and today, in Paul's ministry as well, we've noted even as we've worked our way through part of the passage last week, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 1, that Christ is mentioned throughout this over and over, about nine times that he's referred to. And last week, we just noted in this struggle, joy, and blessing that there was a mission Paul was given, which is now our mission as well, to make a mystery, Christ, known by proclaiming him. Secondly, there's a goal, particularly stated precisely in verse eight, uh, 28, that the word of God and Christ would be fully known, proclaimed, and the goal of that would be all would become mature. And then the means for that mission and that goal to be accomplished is hard work, agony, possibly suffering, as verse 24 talks about, but all the while powered by God's strength and filled with a joy in God. So let's pick up our thought in verse 29 and verse 1 of chapter 2 to just reiterate that Paul is expressing a tremendous care for every church that's planted and established. Didn't matter whether he had been there or not. He identifies several here that he is struggling with. And we think that struggling probably means not just his imprisonment, but how he has been burdened for them, how he has been anxious about every church and how it's doing and whether it's staying on track and how he has prayed for the church. R. Kent Hughes just says very simply, it hurts to care. And Paul, uh, as Hughes notes, 
in his hurting, it doesn't just make him anxious, it makes him more and more prayerful. And we've seen that throughout this letter from the way he started Colossians, and we might even think or suggest, assume here, that he's also talking about his ongoing daily prayer for them. Hughes, again, enlarged hearts always know, and the Greek word agon, or ag, from which we get agony. They have sleepless nights, they empathize, they struggle in prayer. But these big hearts also know the most joy. It's this kind of heart to which all of us are called, whether missionaries or merchants, and we can put in all kinds of other things, martyrs or stay-at-home moms, church leaders or church members, a heart that is willing to agonize on behalf of others, particularly for their spiritual growth in Christ. And then just a reminder of Epaphras as well. Toward the end of the letter, we'll see Paul come back to this. But I just want to point out to you now that that struggling in the second line there of Colossians 4.12 is the same struggling we're seeing of Paul doing here as well. Prayer is agony, struggling, working hard for both the missionaries, the evangelists, the church planters, the elders, the leaders, but also for all of those who are needing and receiving that prayer so that they might experience God's mighty power and energy working in them. Today, we're going to see not only Paul's agony and struggle and care for the church, but our call to also toil in like manner for First Street Bible Church, more particularly, the believers and the people here who make up this body. So let's ask the Lord now for his help. Father, again, as we study what you did in and through Paul, as he wrote this letter, we ask you, just as he encountered the glorious Christ on that road that transformed his life, that you would continue to show us more of Christ and his glory, that it would increase our passion for him, for you, that it would increase our passion for the gospel and the good news to both believe it and to share it with others, and that it would intensify in us a passion for the church in a day and age where many are only seeing it as a broken and not that important of a place. Please work so that all of us in proclaiming Christ will be made more mature in Christ for his name's sake and his glory we pray. Amen. So verse 2 is a long verse, uh, and it is filled with lots of different things that are going on. So we're going to spend a little time here trying to weave all of these thoughts together that I hope will show you a very powerful recipe or process or means by which God really grows us spiritually to accomplish the very ending thought of chapter 1, verse 28. So Paul's desire, his struggle, his prayer is, number one, that their hearts would be encouraged, that they would be strengthened, that they would be fortified, that they would have a heart that is strong. Because just like a physical heart affects how a person lives, so a spiritual heart in our faith affects how dynamically we live the Christian life as well. And whether it's discouragement, as David Garland alludes to here, or simply a immature faith 
the longing of Paul, the longing for all of us is, and part of the role of the church is encouragement. Acts 14 captures this really well. This is the first missionary journey, and Paul and Barnabas have worked their way through a part of Galatia, gone to a number of cities, experienced all kinds of persecution, but they got all the way to the end of their trail, and then they turned around, and they retraced their steps back through, and their goal in it was to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and warning them, as Colossians 1.28 talks about, that there's going to be many tribulations through which they will ultimately enter the kingdom of God. So this is encouragement is not merely a rah-rah, we want you to feel better about yourself. This is a genuine bolstering of faith because of the looking and gazing at Christ, that we would be better focused on Christ, not just more focused on ourselves. Garland again. The church, First Street Bible Church, should be a place of hope, good cheer, and encouragement. The place where others affirm the areas of growth in our lives and help us on the way to maturation. The place where we are fortified for daily battle in the midst of despair and hopelessness. And third, the place where we do the same for others. Strong hearts, encouraged by God, by Christ, by the word, by truth, produce strong faith, and that produces strong lives. Paul's second wrestling of prayer is that they would be knit together in love, continuing on in verse 2. Um, that that impacts greatly how strongly they stand. So here is the call for believers not to hang on the fringes, but or to be isolated or private with their faith, but to become woven into and intertwined in every direction with a bond with other believers and a community of believers that keeps any of us from simply spinning off and chasing after something, the latest thing that sounds good for spiritual growth or for uh, religious things. So Paul's going to talk about these concepts more in the letter. You can see in chapter 2, if you look ahead a little bit, we'll be there in a few Sundays, he talks about this same idea of being knit together, only now he uses it in bodily imagery to simply say all of the ligaments and all of the muscles and all of the parts of the body that flow together and all knit together within our flesh is a picture of how we are to be as a body. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, in the list of the fact that we are to put on hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving each other, verse 15, peace ruling over our hearts. In the midst of all of that, he says above everything else, put on love. And now you're going to see some of this same imagery which binds or knits everything together in perfect harmony or coordination. And keep that thought in mind when we get to verse 5 because I'll probably forget to tie that together. But the perfect harmony and the good order. Now, Scripture speaks, and we actually in September spent a Sunday on the unity and the oneness that Scripture calls us to. I would just remind you again here of Jesus' prayer and how over and over and over, three times in this short little section of his prayer, he asked the Father 
to make all of the followers one in the same way, incredibly, that the Father and Son are one. In fact, the third time he prays it, he prays that they would become perfectly one. Lots of other places that we could go to, but the emphasis that the New Testament has for the church is that we are to be Christ-centered and Christ-loving as a church. If you want to know how Christ-centric a church body is, look at how knit together in love its members are. And I want to just pause here for a brief application because I think many in the American church, so this is our context of application, many American believers today are failing to see the significance of this element of church life for their own spiritual lives. So many are, have no connection to a church. They're just following Jesus. And many are just lightly connected. They don't mind at all showing up on a Sunday morning, knowing nobody around them, never greeting anybody, coming in as a stranger or unnoticed, and leaving that way and feeling safe about all of that. And I think the call here and the challenge for us as a church of about 180 to 190 adults is that we're all to have our hearts, our lives woven together, knit together, that there is a strength that God provides in each of us individually through our loving unity together. So may God continue to knit us closer and closer in Christ and for Christ. And let me urge each of you to consider how you are helping us become knit together in love. The rest of verse 2, still loaded with lots of thoughts. Fascinating connection, I think, here that Paul is packing together. It's like semis on I-80, just one big thought after another big thought after another big thought. So all of this encouragement and knitting together in love is to reach, to attain, to acquire, to truly experience all the riches. And so you see the word riches here, and in verse 3 you're going to see treasures. So there's a lot of emphasis here on tremendous wealth that is in Christ Jesus, that Paul wants every church body to experience and to truly know. So he's given us the idea here of you don't go to the bank where you have been given by Christ an account with infinite amount of money in it and all you're doing is withdrawing $10 a day to live on. And you're eking out this existence when all of these riches are at your disposal, stored up in Christ for you. So that's what he wants. He wants all of us to reach the wealth Reach the gems and the jewels uh, to be lavished in all of that. And here's what that will do. It will bring a full assurance. All the riches of full assurance. This unmistakable, unshakable confidence in Christ and really the part of the point of the book, his preeminence and his sufficiency to meet every need that we can ever have. He's still got another of. He's not done. 
of that full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So he's tying back the theme we saw back in verse 25, 26, 27. And then explains it again that the mystery is Christ. So what Paul's doing here, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 9, the prayer that he had, you're going to see knowledge, you're going to see wisdom, you're going to see understanding in that passage, just like you're seeing here. He's tying back. Here still is his prayer, that they would truly know Christ and his will, that they would receive the wisdom of Christ, that it would help them understand everything that's going on and how important everything is. So all of that we might just compile to say, the more you see the glory of Christ or the glory of God in Christ, the less of a mystery it is to you, the stronger your assurance, the richer your walk in him. Sam Storms, our confidence in Christ grows and intensifies in direct proportion to our cognitive grasp of the broad expanse of what God has revealed. Knowledge is the soil in which the seeds of peace and certainty germinate. Great line. Ignorance of God and his revealed word is the breeding ground for heresy and skepticism. And Storm spent a whole section, like four pages, on doubt as well and how important this is for those who doubt God. As our understanding deepens, so too does the peace and tranquility of knowing that we know God is true and that he will do what he has said he will do. So let's try to tie all these half a dozen or so thoughts, big thoughts, of verse 2 together. And let me take a couple of swing-throughs at this. The deeper you go into knowing and understanding the glories and the riches of Christ and simultaneously... Loving unity with other believers, the church, the richer your spiritual life, the greater your maturity in Christ, the more you're rejoicing in Christ, and the less you will succumb to what verse 4 is going to warn us about when we get there shortly. Another swing at this. The riches of Christ are applied to us individually but they are really experienced fully corporately, together, not just each of us in our own silo. So I'll summarize it this way. Real or genuine or true pro proclaiming and teaching of the real truth of Christ, the word, the gospel, within a culture or community of real love that comes from Christ, produces a tremendous, real assurance of faith. And now I'm going to call in some big hitters to help articulate this point and drive it into our hearts. First of all, first in the lineup, batting number one, Kent Hughes. This is an important message for an alive Christianity. No intellectual process will lead to a full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless it is accompanied by a love for him and for Christians that knits us together. The deepest knowledge of the mystery of Christ comes through both the head and the heart. We must study the scriptures about him intensely with all our heart, and we must love him and his people with all our heart. And then we will know as we ought. 
Batting number two today is John Piper. Here's how he swings in on this. When love knits hearts together into a beautiful quilt of unity, the result is not merely stronger affection, but also stronger understanding. This is one of the great and strange facts of Christianity. A deep and confident understanding of Christ comes not merely from thinking, but also from loving. The deepest and most certain insights into the character of God and the wisdom of God come into the heads that are attached to loving hearts. And batting third today, Sam Storms. Clean up. There is a spiritual dynamic at work when Christian men and women corporately and in loving covenant relationship with one another which is why we also have a literal covenant membership, commit themselves to the pursuit of the knowledge of God. The insights we gain from one another, the mutual accountability, the collective wisdom that is generated in the context of the local church, all serve to enhance our growth in godliness and understanding in a way that can never be fully attained when we venture out on our own. Okay. Hopefully... That's soaking into you. And you can just see how much knowing and understanding Christ and knitting ourselves together in love go hand in hand. They are the most encouraging things for our faith. Now, verse 3 is really an appositive, for those five of you that know what that is, that is unpacked as soon as he says Christ's name at the end of verse 2. So he's reiterating why the knowledge and understanding of the mystery of God is so critical or important because he's saying in that mystery, in Christ, there is an incredible source of wisdom and knowledge for us. In fact, it is the sole source of true wisdom and knowledge. Here's one other way to think about verse 3. And if you write in your Bibles, you can maybe draw a line back up to 15 to 20. If you remember verses 15 to 19, we saw about a dozen descriptions of Christ that were glorious works and attributes of his nature and what he has done. You could say that verse 3 could be added on to that list as yet one more massively important quality about Christ and why he must be preeminent in all that we're doing in following God. Christ is the only person, he's the only place, however you want to think of that, where genuine true knowledge of God and his will and his ways can be found. He's the key, as somebody said, to discovering all the unknowns about God. Now, all of this is combating what we're going to see at the end of chapter 23, a appearance of wisdom, but a, a human wisdom a not genuine or not true. So Paul says here in verse 3 that this, these treasures are hidden, meaning they don't come naturally apparent to humans. We need the Spirit, we need Christ himself to show us this, to bring this to us. But too often we're running elsewhere. And we may be a people with more resources to run to, to look for wisdom, and all kinds of pragmatic ways to parent 
to deal with addictions, to help our marriage, or whatever it might be. And the, the message here is, ultimately, we're going to find that through Christ, that that is sufficient, and everything ultimately must be filtered through His wisdom and His knowledge, and that is where we must lean. One good question for us is, when I receive wisdom from man, and I look in the Word and see wisdom from Christ, which one wins the day for me if they do not align with each other and if the wisdom of man does not speak in alignment with the wisdom of God? A couple of thoughts on this. Alexander McLaren, first of all. In Christ, as in a great storehouse, lie all the riches of spiritual wisdom, the massive ingots of solid gold, which when coined into creeds and doctrines are the wealth of the church. All which we can know concerning God and man, concerning sin and righteousness and duty, concerning another life, all of that is in him who is the home and deep mind where truth is stored. And then again from Sam Storms. Knowledge of Christ is to be honored and valued above all else is that not how we would treat any treasure that we discovered. The knowledge and wisdom that we find in Christ and in Christ alone are not to be treated casually or flippantly or presumptuously. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is a treasure of infinite worth and value. And then he did his alliteration that I love so deeply. But very good points. Ponder the knowledge of Christ deeply. Pray for it daily. Plunder its riches. Protect it from defilement and distortion. Penetrate its mysteries. And prize it above all earthly wealth, wisdom, and gain. What Paul is doing here as we head into a section that we'll begin to unpack next Sunday, Lord willing, is driving the stake in the middle, the fulcrum, so to speak, around which... He is saying everything else in life, everything else in the universe needs to center around and rotate around Christ. He is the sole source by which we get the true knowledge and the true wisdom of God himself. Now, all of that, in one way we could say everything in the letter so far, but certainly these last thoughts all have been laid out as a foundation for this point. We get us so that. I say this emphasizing the reason, making his goal clear. In order that no one may be deluded or verse 8 of chapter 2 will say, take us captive with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments are reasonings and ways of thinking and worldviews that are convincing and persuasive in and of themselves but they're actually powerless to truly help us spiritually and mature us spiritually. But they're appealing to a mind that is not, going back to the middle of verse 2, as assured in Christ and his riches and his wisdom as it should be. Now, those plausible arguments can be words, they can be ideas, they can be opinions, they can be philosophies, they can be psychology, they can be practices, they can be rituals and discipline. We'll see by the end of chapter 2. 
They can be arguments and reasoning about God, about man, about how we're saved, about how we're sanctified. Any litany of things that we can be deluded by plausible-sounding arguments. Sorry, I put sounding in that. It shouldn't be there at the top. Reasons for concern about this. Number one, because we humans can be so misled. Number two, because human reasoning can be incredibly plausible sounding if we're not fixed on Christ and his word. Counterfeits on the surface at first can sound very good, very genuine, very helpful. And we must be careful then to search scripture. And reason number three is that Satan is incredibly deceptive. We can go back to the garden and see it in Genesis 3 where he is described as more crafty than anything else in the universe. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians in his second letter, 2 Corinthians 11, first of all in verse 3 he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, your knowledge, your trust in the Lord will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. By plausible arguments we could say. Then down in verses 14 and 15. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Using enough Christianese, using enough uh, spiritual sounding things that we can be deluded into believing them and pursuing them and thinking that they are the way. So remember that how false teachers arise within the church or within our culture, and lead individuals, which is their favorite thing to do, pick them off one and a one, those that are isolated, those that are alone, those that are away from the church, those that aren't knit together in love, or to lead a whole group astray sometimes, is not because their arguments sound idiotic. Now, some of them do. Some of them do. We're hearing a bunch of them now. But not all of them. And that's where we need to be careful. There's the obvious ones. But be careful of the ones that seem or sound very plausible, that our human hearts may be drawn to, especially if it involves us doing it and accomplishing it, rather than Christ. Hebrews 5.14 calls us to always be on guard and says that the mature, so there's the same language as we see in Colossians 1.28, are people who have their powers of discernment trained by constant, we can almost say daily. Almost everything that you read or listen to. A constant practice or discipline of distinguishing good from evil. And not being deluded or misled by that. So, tying together now, this knitting together this love, this seeking of knowledge and wisdom in Christ alone is to keep us, protect us from being sucked into a path that takes us ultimately away from Christ. And that brings us to verse 5, where Paul, I would say, ties together with another encouragement, same way that he started his whole letter, and what he told us he was wanting to do in verse 2 at the beginning of it, encourage. Here is an encouragement. And then he's going to circle back, and this will be next week, Lord willing, verses 6 and 7, with a charge to keep going in that. So, verse 5 is the foundation. Here's what I see good. Verses 6 and 7 are, now dive down deep into that and keep going in that. 
Verse 5 also has the repeat of rejoicing, which we saw back in 124. There it was rejoicing even when he was suffering because of what God was doing. Here it's rejoicing because he sees God building his church, even in a place that Paul never actually got to go personally and preach the gospel. I'm told he uses a couple of military expressions here. Good order and firmness. The good order is the idea of you have good disciplines, good practices. You've developed in relationship to each other in good order, as a body should. You're not chaotic and all over and up and down and close and far. You're, there's a good order to your relationships. Your union with Christ and other believers' union with Christ is bringing all of you into a good order or union. A battalion works most effectively in combat when it's working in coordination with each other. Brief note, as perhaps an illustration of how a church can lose its good order. I think we lost our good order to some degree, and we can argue that, during COVID. I think we became divided, apart, fragmented, isolated, and weakened as a result. So Paul's point here is the good order is good, but it's going to be attacked. You need to hold it. That's what he's going to really press in verses 6 and 7. Just like a well-coached team will go in with a plan to a game, a game plan, but when chaos happens, when things not talked about happen, it keeps its order. It keeps its disciplines in the middle of all that's going on that might be potential distraction to tempt it off course. Second military term is firmness. So, first expression, how well drawn up they are for battle. Second one is how solid their commitment to their commander is. The firmness of your faith in Christ. This is being hammered all over in this section of the letter. Look back at chapter 1, verse 23, where Paul emphasized that for us to experience all the riches of Christ that are intended for us, we must continue in the faith. We must stay stable, steadfast, not shifting. Then peek ahead in, into next Sunday's passage, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. The faith in Jesus must receive him, must take deep roots into him, must be built up and grow in him, so that, it, like a redwood, it is fully established. Storms one last time. Here is what evokes a heartfelt well done from our great and glorious God. People whose lives are fixed and riveted on Christ alone, whose faith does not bend, that's a good word, bend with every blast of new doctrinal wind, whose commitment is not compromised by threat or fear of persecution or loss of personal convenience and comfort. Two closing reflections as I try and encapsulate. So you're going to see two very busy slides. I contemplated whether to do this or not, but I wanted you to also see it in one gulp. So here's fire hydrant number one to take a drink out of. Tremendous lessons about the church here. And let me, this will be in the email. Let me just verbally give it to you now. Verse 24, that the church is worth suffering about. Do you believe that? 
Would you suffer for this church body? Because it's Christ's body. And in that suffering, could you rejoice? That's Paul's point in verse 24, or illustration, modeling. Secondly, in verse 25, Christ's body, the church, is to carry on what the apostles began. And that is that we must make the word of God fully known to each other, but also as much as we can to the world. Particularly, the mystery within the word that was so lost for all those centuries before he came, Christ himself. Third, verse 27, that the church, Christ's body, has one hope of glory, and it's Christ in us. Verse 27 and 28, fourth, that the church is to proclaim Christ. We have a task, whether it's here in the sanctuary or in our homes or wherever, sitting in a coffee shop. We are to point people to Christ. We are to warn each other. We are to teach each other. And that is the means by which we will be matured in Christ as fully as we can be. Verses 29 and verse 1. That Christ's body or the church is worth toiling and struggling for and praying over. And in that, God will also provide incredible power and energy. Verse 2 of chapter 2. That the church finds encouragement in Christ when it unites itself tightly to each other. And that Christ's body is fully assured, the better that we know and understand him. Verse 4, the church must not be deluded away from Christ by any arguments that are plausible, but not from the word. And finally, in verse 5, a church that's in good order and firm in its faith can be rejoiced in. It is a great encouragement. There's a lot of people today that can seem to only see what's wrong with the church. And we are far from perfect. We are so very broken. Sin runs rampant through all of us. We're not perfect. We're not what we should be. But we also need to see it from God's eyes. That this is the body of his beloved son. That we are his. And he has invested all of himself in us. And this is his plan A. And we will know him and be matured in him. And attain all that we're meant to attain of the riches of Christ. As we unify and knit ourselves together in love. And finally, but not least importantly, most importantly, this section teaches us again about our glorious Christ. With Christ, verse 24, first of all, there are afflictions for us, but they will be joyfully suffered, for we know we're filling them up for his sake and for the sake of the church. Secondly, from verse 26, there is his stewardship that we are to fulfill. Verses 27 and 28. There is his word and gospel and mystery and son to make fully known. Fourth, in verse 28. There is his glory for us to hope in. Verse 29 of chapter 1. There is his energy to powerfully work in us. Verse 2 of chapter 2. There is his love that knits us together. Verses 2 and 3. There is understanding and knowledge of him for us to reach that will encourage and assure us and build us up. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, there are treasures of wisdom and knowledge in him to fully mature us and keep us from being deluded. And fifth, there is good order and firmness of faith in Christ to develop and maintain him. Let me bring you back to the quote we opened with and just remind you again, I think this is a great charge for us individually, but this was also a church's vision statement. Our deepest calling is to pray and disciple people into seeing his irresistible beauty. His glory, his grace, his love, 
his mercy, his cross, his grave, his throne, his pursuit of us, his welcoming of us, his reconciling, redeeming work in us. We can go on and on, can't we? Incredible riches that he gives us. And then secondly, that he is to be adored. We will soon be singing, oh, come, let us adore him. But he was a mystery to so many people, even those, the people of God, for so many centuries. And you and I now have this full and complete and glorious revelation of God that are the very word and words of Christ himself. So he is to be adored. He is to be loved. He is to be worshipped and honored. He is to be depended on. He is to be served, obeyed, proclaimed, and thanked, as we'll be reminded at the end of verse 7 next week. Praise Jesus. What a Savior. What a Lamb. What a Redeemer. What a Reconciler. What a God you are. And we come now to adore you, to worship you, and to continue to point our lives evermore toward you as our North Star. I pray that you will make yourself ever more vivid and powerful and real to every one of us, and that the resulting work of that is that we will draw even closer together as your people, as your body, and the result of that will be a church that radiates Jesus Christ. Please do that for the glory of your sake and not ours, we pray. Amen.